Well, good morning, church. As, as many of you probably know, I am a uh, father of three young boys with a girl on the way. Yeah. Through Valentine's Day. And uh, so life, life in the Loudermilk house is a little bit chaotic at times. And, and for the most part, I'm good with the chaos. Like I embrace the chaos. But there's a couple of places where the chaos just gets to me a little bit. And, and those places are really family devotionals and dinner, right? I mean, we've had some great family devotionals through the years. We had a, we had a great one this morning. But, but I'm here to tell you, I, as your pastor, have had many family devotional failures with my kids. Devotionals that ultimately kind of end with me going, now you listen to me. God is a God of grace and mercy. Now go to your room, you know. And, uh, and dinners, you know, we have some great dinners. But some of those can be, can be tough as well. And we, we had one of those this week, and I had to send one of my kids to his room because he was, he was acting up, and so he didn't get to eat dinner with the family. And, and, and that night, I was tucking the boys into bed, and he said, Dad, can you, can you come lay with me? And I was kind of frustrated, but I said, okay. And so I, get, I, I lay down there next to him, and he says, Dad, and he just grabs me. He says, I'm sorry. And I love you. And he goes, and of all the dads in the world, I'm so thankful that you're my dad. Now, this kid's good, right? I don't know if he meant a word of it. But I went in there frustrated, and I left like, I love that kid, man. Right? Because... Because parents find delight in the gratitude of their children. Just parents find great delight in the gratitude of their children. And this is something that in some ways we mirror our Father in Heaven. Because God takes great delight in the gratitude and the praise of His children. In Psalm 147 verse 10 The psalmist writes that God's pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his delight in the legs of the warrior. Like, he's not impressed with strength. He's not impressed with that military might. But it says, but the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Awesome. And so as we, as we pick up our story this morning in, in Luke chapter 17, we're going to come face to face with one of those moments of just incredible love. And we're going to see how we are to respond as his people in great gratitude. And so if, if you've been with us through our journey of the Gospel of Luke, you know that we're ending the near, we're ending the, the, near the end of the section of the Gospel of Luke called the travel log. So this is really chapters 9 through 17, and Jesus is just kind of ping-balling around from place to place, pinging here, here, boom, boom, boom. And, and as Luke writes this, he's not necessarily writing this in a pure chronological order. Ancient uh, historians in antiquity, that's not how they necessarily wrote history. 
And so Luke is, is hitting some places and hitting some themes and unpacking some things he wants us to know about our Savior. So we see Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We see Jesus uh, equipping and training his disciples. We see Jesus uh, doing miracles and, and healings and, and rebuking the religious leadership of the day. And as we come to our text this morning in verse 11, it says that Jesus is traveling between, a, he's going to a village between Samaria and Galilee. Now, let's talk geography for a little bit. When you hear the word Samaria, you probably have a couple things come to your mind, right? One is Samaria, Samaritan. And so your mind goes to the Good Samaritan. I mean, one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, a story so famous that and popular that people outside the church, people have never stepped foot in the church, they know about the story of the Good Samaritan. And then the second thing, because y'all have been in the church, is you probably know, now, now the Jews did not like them. They did not like the Samaritans. And, and the question is why, right? And so a couple of weeks ago, we unpacked this a little bit. When, when King Solomon dies, and his kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, split into two, right? You have Israel in the north, and you have Judah in the south. And we talked about how this is the way it is for about 350 years, and it does not go very well. The poor leadership, it crushes the people. And so in seven, especially in the north, and so in 722, these, these mean, I mean, nasty folks called the Assyrians, they come from the north and what's modern-day Syria and Iraq, and they come down and they crush Israel. And they take Israel out in 722. And what the Assyrians do is they kill a number of Israelites. They ship a number out, but they leave some there. But then they repopulate the land with various pagan tribes from around the area. And so all of a sudden, the nation, the kingdom of Israel, is full of non-Jews. And what happens is the Jews and these non-Jews begin to intermarry. And Israel was already wayward even before the Assyrians arrived, but this is just going to take them just off the reservation. And they, you start having all this syncretism going on in Israel where, yeah, we worship the God of Israel, but not in Jerusalem. We're going to worship him here in Samaria. And yeah, but we also worship uh, Malach and, and these other gods. We're down with them too. And it becomes a complete cluster, a total disaster of, of, of epic proportions in Israel. And so as Jesus is, is at, when he's walking the earth, the Samaritans are those folks who are living in that region. And they are hated. They're just hated. They're seen as half-breeds ethnically. They're seen as uh, heretics theologically. And they're seen as just flat-out sinners morally. They're sellouts. And so this is, this is the attitude towards the Samaritans, the time Jesus is on earth. And it says that he's walking near the region of Samaria. So Jesus is from Galilee in the north. Samaria's right under it, and then you had Judea underneath that, and that's where Jerusalem was. And so he's walking in between, and he goes to a village between Samaria and Galilee, and he's, he's met by a group of men there that are even more disdained and rejected than the Samaritans. Because it's here that he meets a group of ten lepers. And in verse 12... It says, as he entered the village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy 
on us. So leprosy is a disease that you read about pretty frequently in the scriptures. It comes from the Greek word lepros, and it just means scaly. So this is an awful skin disease that was pretty prevalent in the area. And it, and it caused you to lose feeling, to lose sensation. Your, your fingers and, and toes would essentially fall off. Your face would become deformed. It was a brutal existence. And it was seen as a judgment from God. Like you're a leper because you're a sinner and God is rightfully judging you. But the brutality of leprosy wasn't even, wasn't even so much the physical aspect of it, but the emotional and communal aspect of leprosy because it was extremely contagious. Like we have a, a kid at home right now who, or we had a kid this week who had strep throat and I'm going to Africa and I was telling him all week, just don't even look at me, Luke. Like I cannot get sick. And so leprosy was extremely contagious and so it isolated you from the people that you love. And you left your family. You had to leave your community of friends. You left your place of, of worship. You left, you left your place of, of community. And you had to leave out, go outside and essentially live in a leper colony. Because you were unclean. And because this was so contagious. And, and this might sound harsh, but this is something that was prescribed in the Levitical law. This is in Leviticus 13 and 14. It's in the Mosaic Law. It is to protect the people because the contagiousness of this disease could just wipe out and decimate a population. So it, it, it's devastating. So when we read about these guys raising their voices to Jesus and crying for mercy, y'all, this is where they're coming from. They are completely broken. They're completely broken. And their, their life has been ripped away as their body wastes away. And yet they see Jesus. And they know that this guy's different. His reputation precedes him. That's probably why they know to go to him. But they can't get up close to him because they're lepers. And that's against the law. And so that's why it says from a distance they shouted out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And the word master there in the Greek, it's only in Luke, and it's a high value. It's the only time it's used by non-disciples. These guys esteem Jesus. They esteem him. And so they cry out to him. And look how Jesus responds. In verse 14, it says, When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going... They were cleansed. Notice he didn't say, go show yourself to the priest and you will be cleansed. He says, go show yourself to the priest, period. And as they went, they were cleansed. It's kind of interesting because Jesus has a number of encounters with lepers in the, in the scriptures. You think of, of Matthew 8 and, and how does he heal the leper? He, he touches him, which was a big deal, touched the leper. But here in Luke 17, he just speaks words of power over these guys and says, go see the priest, which is a fascinating command. Because the priest at that time, and I know it's kind of hard for us to really understand, but the priest at that time served in a variety of functions, in a variety of ways. And one of the ways they served the community was, was 
somewhat as a healthcare professional. They were the doctors of purity. They made decisions, are are you able to stay in our community? So it was on the shoulders of the priest to banish and exile the lepers. They were the ones who made that call. And yet the priests were also the ones you went to after you were cured. Okay? So put yourself in these guys' shoes for a second. Imagine what it must have been like to receive this command. I mean, you're full of the possibilities, but you're also filled with dread. I mean, you're overcome with excitement, but you're also overcome with terror and anxiety. Because Jesus is sending them to the lion's den. He's saying, I mean, they're probably going, why can't you just touch us? I mean, that worked for that other dude. Just touch us and, and say, you're clean. Go on your way. we got to go see the priest. And yet, they go. And, and it got me thinking this week as I, was, as I was reading this. If you go through the scriptures, one of the things you'll notice is that God loves to reward faith that involves risk. The faith that God loves to reward is a faith that involves risk. And it happens over and over and over again. I mean, think about the healing of the paralytic. Those guys dug a hole in somebody else's roof. That could have gone poorly, right? You do that in Texas, you're liable to get shot, right? But they're, hey, they're going to take a risk and their, and their friend is healed. I think about the, the father and the story of the prodigal son who risked his credibility to go meet the son. I think of Esther who risked her life to save her people and go before the king. I think of Rahab housing the spies. I think of Ruth going with Naomi. I think of Abraham, who God says, leave everything you know and go to a place that I will show you. And he goes. I think of Moses, who who risked a life of luxury and gives up a life of luxury to lead the Israelites. I think of David, who risked his head so that he might have Goliath. I think of the the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years who risked rebuke just to touch the cloak of Jesus. I think of the disciples who risked their livelihood and their families by laying down their nets and becoming fisher of men. The faith that God rewards is a faith that involves risk. And, And that is a reminder that the goal of the Christian life is not comfort. The goal of the Christian life is not security. It's not to mitigate risk. But it is to walk in faith and obedience. And that requires risk. It requires it. And and, and look, 
Don't take, you don't need to take this to an extreme. Obviously, you can, at 5 p.m. on Monday, if you go, I'm going to walk across 410. But I know God's got me. And if I get to the other side, you know, I mean, come on, right? It's not what we're talking about. Be prudent. Be wise. Be prayerful. Seek the scriptures. Seek community. Seek counsel. But take risk. Take risk. Because in those risks is where we often find our greatest reward. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of that this week is literally 48 hours from right now, I'm on a plane. I'm on the tarmac, and, and I'm heading out to Rwanda to be with our team that's already out there as we minister with our, with our partner, African New Life Ministries. And, and when I get picked up there, I'm going to see my good friend, Charles Mugisha, who is the founder of African New Life Ministries and, and somebody who's been a wayside partner here for a couple of decades. But the story of African New Life and how Charles... How this ministry began is fascinating. He's a Rwandan, but he grew up in Uganda. His parents left Rwanda during the first genocide in the 1950s, and they fled to Uganda. So that's where he grew up. That's where he went to school. That's where he came to know the Lord. He became a part of a ministry in Uganda called Africa Renewal Ministries that Wayside has supported for 30 years. And he was the right-hand man. He was set. But then in 1994, the genocide in Rwanda happens. And all of a sudden, God's tugging at this guy's heart to go to the land that he doesn't really know. It's his home, but it's, his, it's not. And so he goes there less than a year after the genocide, and he told me that the whole country smelled of death. Just the whole country smelled like death. And he saw all these orphans and all these widows and all these, the homelessness that was so pervasive. And he just said, I, God, I know you want me to do something, but I don't know what. But I know you've burdened my heart. And so he went back. He ultimately came to the U.S., but he was always like just burdened. God, what, how are you going to use me? And so in the summer of 2001, he goes over to Rwanda with his wife Florence. And they bring back a handful of pictures of Rwandan children who are going to be the first kids to be sponsored as part of Africa New Life Ministries. And 17 years later, there are over 9,000 kids sponsored through Africa New Life Ministries. They run schools throughout the country, including the top school in the entire nation of Rwanda in Kayonza, where they preach the gospel freely. The government begs them to run schools in the country. They just got done completing one of the finest hospitals in the entire country to serve the poor and to serve the community. They've planted New Life Bible churches all over Rwanda where the gospel is going forth. And they have the top, they established the top evangelical Bible college in the entire country called the Africa College of Theology that's training hundreds and hundreds of Africans, not even just from Rwanda, with the truths of the gospel. And that's where, that's where I'll be next week. It's a ministry being used by God to literally transform a country. And it, it came about because one man and one woman, this couple said, there's a need. There's a burden on my heart. There's a passion to make a difference. And then they took the risk. And they stepped out in faith. And that country has been changed because of it. And Charles and Florence are going to be with us uh, November 11th here at Wayside. So you're going to get to meet them. 
And it's going to be a tremendous, tremendous weekend when we, when we have them here. And let me just say one more thing on this. When I speak of faith that is rewarded, I want to be clear, because this can be confusing. I am not just speaking about rewards in terms of metrics. I'm not just speaking about rewards in terms of numbers and statistics, because we hear 9,000 kids and we go, praise the Lord, as we should. But the reality is there are people just as faithful as Charles living out the gospel, and there's not 9,000 to their name. There's nine, but that's great because God is the one that controls that. God is the one who controls those things. Our job is to be faithful. And the reward of our risk is God himself. That's the point. The reward of our risk is God himself. The reward of our faith in God is a greater depth of our relationship with God. Because a faith that never involves risk, hear me on this, a faith that never involves risk will never involve intimacy. Because it won't have dependence at the heart of it. A faith that doesn't involve risk will not involve intimacy because there's no trust. There's no dependence. And if you don't think we're made for that, let me give you an example. I'm going to be teaching on Christology next week. I'm going to be teaching on the doctrine of Christ. And one of the most fascinating things about the doctrine of Christ and the life of Christ is how dependent he was on the Holy Spirit. Read the scriptures. Read how many times Jesus, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit. The Spirit led him to the wilderness. He was born by the Spirit. He was raised by the Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit. That's what Christ means, anointed, Messiah, anointed. The God-man himself lived on this earth in dependence to God the Spirit. And in great intimacy and power. And that is how we are designed to live as well. So where in your life is God telling you to go show yourself to the priest? Like where in your life is God telling you, take that step and go show yourself to the priest? Because that's what he tells the lepers, and that's exactly what they did. It says, as they were going, they were cleansed. You think that was a special moment? I mean, they're heading towards the priest in the town, hearts beating outside their chest. They came and feel their feet on the ground, and all of a sudden they look down, and the scales are gone. The blotches are gone. The rash is gone. They can feel their face for the first time in years. And they're just overwhelmed. They can smell. You see, you see lepers were full of, of just so open sores. Their smell was legendary. And this time they breathe in, and the smell is completely different. It's the smell of life. I mean, what a moment. 
And as we see in verse 15, this moment is not lost on them. At least it's not lost on one of them. It says, no, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. So of the ten that are healed, one comes back. And the one that comes back is the Samaritan. He has just received this unspeakable grace. And his response is unrestrained gratitude and thankfulness. And so he turns around and returns to Jesus. And I want you to notice where he stops because this is fantastic. It says he falls at Jesus' feet. Now, this is why this is so powerful. Number one, it shows the the level of admiration and love and respect and belief that this man has in Jesus. And the second thing it shows is that he is healed. He's healed. You see, when, when when he cried from afar, he had to because that was the law. He couldn't be near Jesus. So they said, Lord, have mercy on us. But when he's healed, he comes right to the feet of Jesus because the barrier has been removed. The the curtain has been torn. The things that were holding him back have been broken and he finds himself right where he belongs at the feet of his Savior. And, and, And frankly, I don't know of a greater picture of the Christian life than this. This is incredible. Because as you think about your life, and as you read the Scriptures, one of the things you become really aware of, at least you should, is that you have a disease. You have a spiritual disease. You you have an internal leprosy. Something the Bible calls sin. But this is not something that just removes you from community. This is something... That removes you from fellowship with your creator. And this is not something that, there's no man-made cure for sin. You can't learn enough knowledge or change your diet. You can't be moral enough. Or or esteemed or privileged or achieved enough to remove your sin. You're stuck with this disease and and this sin causes us to rot from the inside into a place of despair and yet that is why Jesus came he came to deal with it in John chapter 3 verse 16 says for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the follow-up question is, well, how does that fix our issue of sin? And that's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he, for he, the Father, made him, Jesus, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So our sin is nailed to Jesus on the cross and his righteousness is received, is imputed to us by faith. And through the sacrifice of one, 
there's the salvation of many. And John tells us that in chapter 1. It says, as many as received him, to them he gives the right to become children of God to all who believe in his name. It's the gospel. It's God who initiates our redemption. It's God who secures our redemption. And it's God who sustains our redemption. And so the proper posture for the Christian towards God is one of humility and one of gratitude. Humility and gratitude. Humility and gratitude. Humility because we have nothing to offer. And gratitude because in Christ we have received everything we need. So our posture is one of humility and gratitude. And yet what is shocking is that this man, this Samaritan, is by himself, isn't he? The other nine lepers are nowhere to be found. And this is not lost on Jesus. It says, then Jesus answered and said, in verse 17, Where there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Where are the nine? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus said, I healed ten. But only one has returned. And the one that returned is not even a Jew. It's a foreigner. It's the Samaritan. And and, and it kind of seems unfathomable to us, right? Reading it. It it kind of seems unfathomable. I mean, how could the other nine not come back? Is Is it really possible to be that ungrateful? And the obvious answer is yes. Absolutely. I mean, we do it all the time. This guy, these guys had their leprosy removed so that they could be restored in community. We have had our sin washed away so that we can have eternal life with our Creator. And yet, how many times do days, we go days without even acknowledging God? Days without even acknowledging in any sense of gratitude what it is that God has done for us. Now, why is that? Why? I think, obviously, the answer is sin, but I think it fleshes out a variety of ways. And, and I was thinking about this week, and I came up with three, and I know there's more. But the three that I thought of were busyness, comparison, and entitlement. Busyness, comparison, and entitlement. You see, busyness robs us of two key aspects of gratitude. Time and perspective. We miss the forest for the trees. And we miss God's kindness because we're worried about whatever the next crisis is. And so we lose sight of God. And we're just too busy to stop and give Him thanks. The second thing that robs us of gratitude is comparison. Comparison. You see, comparison typically does two things, one of two things, and neither one is good. Right? You either compare yourself to somebody else and you're like, I'm way better than them. Like, seriously. And it just bubbles up pride. 
Or you look at somebody else and you say, I want what they have. And it just elicits despair. And we become so worried about comparison that we lose our joy. In reality, if you want to compare yourself to someone, look to Christ. He's our brother. He's our Lord. And think of Paul who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're called to be imitators. We're called to look to Christ and compare, but we're not called to look at one another and make value judgments about how great we are. Because that leads to pride and despair and both rob our gratitude. Thirdly, gratitude is affected by entitlement. Because when you take things for granted, it makes gratitude impossible. When you take things for granted, it makes gratitude impossible. And we are good at this. But the reality is that we are entitled to nothing, to nothing, to nothing. But we live with a real sense of God's indebted to us. Like he owes me a long life because I ate my broccoli when I was 14. Like he owes me a financial future of security because I worked hard. He owes me a good marriage because 74% of the time I have a quiet time in the morning. But that's, that's not how it works. You're not entitled to any of those things. And it just greater reveals the grace of God that the fact that you woke up this morning and you felt the wind on your face or you saw the sunrise or you heard the beautiful sound of worship, it is because of God's grace, not because you're great. Not because you deserve it, not because we're entitled to it, but because God is a giver of good things. And we as his children get to receive those and we are to give him thanks in those things. And it's a beautiful thing. And this is exactly what the Samaritan realizes. And so he goes back to Jesus and he falls at his feet. And it tells me that the key to gratitude is recognizing God's grace. The key to experiencing a life of gratitude is never losing sight of God's grace. It is by grace this man is healed. And it is by grace that Jesus says, you're not only just healed of your leprosy, you are saved. You are saved by your faith. You are saved by your trust. Go. It's incredible. I want to close with one of my favorite stories, one that you've heard probably a million times in church about the life of John Newton. He's one of my heroes. Newton was born in, in 1725 to a godly mom who nurtured him in the Lord, but she died at the age of seven. And so Newton was, was left to spend the, his life on the seas with his dad, who was a merchant. And that life was brutal, and Newton was brutal. He was a terrible terrible young man involved in all kinds of sins so much so that because of insubordination they kicked him off and threw him from ship to ship to ship until he finally arrived on a slave ship where he was uh, abused on the slave ship begging for food 
But through that, he got exposed to Thomas Akempis' book, Imitation of Christ. And as he read it, the gospel began to sink, sink roots in his soul. And he came to know the Lord. And as his faith rise, uh, grew, so did his prominence in the slave trade. And so he was a, he was a captain. And, and he said, I'm going to change this thing from the inside. And he, he treated his slaves well on his ship. And he, and he took care of them. But over time, he realized... This is not enough. Like, I cannot change this from the inside. This is not worth changing from the inside. And around the age of 40, which was unheard of at the time, Newton becomes an Anglican priest. And he spends the rest of his life focused on two things, telling people about the grace of God and ending the slave trade. Those were his two hearts, those were his passions. And he became really influential in Great Britain, so much so that Christian leaders would go talk to him. And one of those guys who wanted to get to know him was William Wilberforce. And, and, and Wilberforce had this passion to get out. He was in the parliament, but he, he said, I, gotta, I want to go into ministry. i got to get out of the parliament. And Newton said, don't you dare. He said, you serve God right where you are at. You're going to be the one to take down the slave trade. And Wilberforce spent the rest of his life in Parliament working to make slave trading illegal. And in 1807, just months before Newton passed away, the act to abolish the slave trade finally became law. And Newton died a few months later. And towards the end of his life, he, he wrote these words down. He said, although my memory's fading... I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. See, Newton never lost sight of God's grace. He every day was profoundly amazed that God could forgive him. And it was in that grace and in that gratitude that that newton wrote the greatest hymn that's ever been written as he wrote amazing grace amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me i once was lost but now i'm found was blind but now i see it was god's amazing grace that filled him with a lifetime of gratitude and it is full of gratitude in response to god's amazing grace that we come together as a community and take communion together. You may have heard me before. When I when I'll baptize somebody or when I meet with somebody, I tell them there's really three C's involved with baptism. And that's confession, commitment, and community. And as we gather this morning to take communion, I wanna I wanna tell you there's three things involved with this as well, and they're very similar. When you come to communion, you, are, you come confessing. And you're really confessing two things primarily. One, you are confessing the truth about who God has revealed himself to be as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're confessing belief in the redemptive work of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died for your sin and rose from the grave. So you come to the table confessing. You also come to communion confessing your sin places where you have fallen short, relationships where you have fallen short. 
attitudes towards God that have prevented you from walking in the fullness of who he has created you to be. Communion is a space where we come together and we air out our dirty laundry with God. The second thing that communion speaks to is, is commitment. It's commitment. If, if baptism is like your, your, your wedding, if baptism is, is kind of like you becoming married, communion is your anniversary. Communion, communion is you are, you are coming to communion, recommitting your life to Christ. Recommitting that you are who you say you are and I will live for you, you and no other. And then it involves community. Because we do it as a family. We do it as the church. Because this is what Christ has told us to do. We spend so much time talking about what communion is not that we sometimes fail to embrace the beauty of what communion is. It is a unique time to go before the Lord and engage Him in a meaningful way as we reflect upon what He did for us. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if there's something you need to confess, to get yourself right with God, because you don't come to communion unadvisedly. The scriptures are clear. You come to communion confessing and in the right state. I want to invite anybody here who's placed their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are welcome to take communion with us. The ushers are going to come forward and pass the elements. Take this time to go before the Lord, hold the elements, and we'll take them together in a minute. You know, when I think about another person who took a risk, I think of John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist had a huge following. He was the man. But he came to a conclusion that this is not about me. I must decrease. He must increase. And so he gave it up. Because Jesus is the king. And so when he sees Jesus in John chapter 1, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came and died so that we might have communion with him. And so when you take this bread, this is the body of Jesus. This is his body spiritually present with us. Eat this in remembrance of him. The book of Hebrews says there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And this is not something the Jews needed to be reminded of. Because there were sacrifices that went on day after day after day after day that when they saw that happen and they saw that blood, they knew it was a result of their sin. And so when Jesus came and shed his blood, he did it to remove sin once and for all, past, present, and future from those who will place their trust in him. An incredible act of love. The redemption by our Savior Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ. Drink in remembrance of him. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we we come before you this morning and we ask that you would hear our cry.
that you would fill us with, with a deep sense of gratitude and awe of who you are. God, we want to be people that are so immersed, so saturated by your grace that we're like a sponge that gets squeezed and gratitude flows out. And Lord, we don't want to just be people who are grateful, who are thankful for the weather or thankful for a good meal. But Lord, may our gratitude reach its perfect end, which is the giver of all good things, which is you, our God. May we give you gratitude. I'm sure those other nine men were thankful, but they missed the moment. They missed the opportunity to come back to the feet of Jesus and give you thanks. And that's where we want to be, God. We want to live our life at the feet of Jesus, declaring the greatness of who you are as those who have been overwhelmed by your grace and sent out into a world in desperate need. So would you send us out, Lord? Would you help us take risk? Would you help us go forth in your power, in your name, to the glory of our God and King, now and until our last breath? So, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you, our God, our Creator and Redeemer. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.